0: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad,
1: but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me.
0: Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right
3: platforms,
2: AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What could go right I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am here as always with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are having a series of stimulating, or at least we hope stimulating conversations with stimulating, or at least we hope stimulating people who are members of The Progress Network, which we created as a way to establish a platform for like-minded voices who are focused in one way or another on constructing a better future and not simply focused relentlessly on all the problems that beset our world today. Not that they're not focused on all the problems that beset our world today, simply that the arc of their work and the motive of their sensibility is to create the future that we want to live in and not the future we fear we might be producing. So one of the things that is on everybody's mind, either top of mind or back of mind, but on our minds is this question of what has the world of social media and social media platforms wrought? And if you ask most people that question, most of us will feel these days that it is producing a cacophony of negative voices, that it's leading to political partisanship, and dysfunction that it is also leading to interpersonal dysfunction and even harassment and the ability of people to vent their spleen and worse than their spleen with nary a consequence. Um, that's in real contrast, I think, to 10 years ago or 15 years ago when the general arc probably was much more one of, wow, look at what these tools are making possible, look at what they're unleashing in the best sense of the word, and maybe we are only now in the the antithesis to that thesis, the awareness of the downside of the upside. But in that light, we're gonna talk to two individuals today who both have been focused for a long period of time on some of the more thorny issues of what we do about social media, what we do about online communication, what we do about it personally, what we do about it politically, what we do about it corporately, what we do about it collectively.
2: So today we're with Danielle Citron. She's a leading expert on information, privacy, free speech, civil rights, and administrative law. And she's a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Her book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, explores the phenomenon of cyberstalking and was named one of the best 20 moments for women in 2014 by Cosmopolitan Magazine. She also works closely with civil liberties and privacy organizations and counsels tech companies on online safety, privacy, and free speech. And our second guest today is Eli Pariser. You may know him as the co-founder of Upworthy, the former executive director of MoveOn.org and the author of The Filter Bubble. Today, he's co-director of New Public at the National Conference on Citizenship, which aims to inspire and connect designers and technologists to build more flourishing, public-friendly digital spaces.
0: I want to thank you both for being with us today and being part of the nascent, burgeoning and hopefully expanding ever outward and with the funnel pointing outward progress network. I thought maybe, you know, given that both of you are deeply immersed in many of the dysfunctions of technology and internet and social media land, maybe just start with Eli in that it's about 10 years now since you talked about the filter bubble as a, an emergent, or I guess at the point, right, already emerging issue. Um, I probably know the answer to this, but then again, maybe I don't. Uh, what do you feel 10 years on? I mean, are our are, are, are filter bubbles become, has the, has the the moat become deeper and the bridges become higher and we're now in our bubbles to the degree that we're not even as aware that we are? Or is there a lot of seepage and our attempt to create them is constantly cascading against our ability or inability to filter out information that we don't want to hear?
3: I mean, I would say the power of um you know algorithmic personalized feeds certainly is um you know way way bigger than it was uh 10 years ago and way more kind of all all encompassing um but i also feel like you know i've learned a lot in the last 10 years about how this actually plays out in in the in the real world and um you know the in several dimensions. So one is just like the complexity of how algorithms show up in different people's lives can't be kind of overstated that, um, you know, if I'm someone who has 200 Facebook friends and tends to follow news pages, my experience of Facebook is going to be so different from someone who has thousands of Facebook friends and, and doesn't. That you know, there's there's just a whole variety of different experiences that people are happening even in one platform, let alone across platforms. And so, um, it's really hard to make general statements about sort of what what's happening for for folks. I think the second piece is like I feel less convinced, or, or I feel unconvinced that social media is like the main thing driving people's experience of being in bubbles. The fact that we live in neighborhoods that tend to be with people who agree with us politically. The fact that other media are also structured uh, increasingly in that way, the kind of educational and economic uh, segregation in the country, all of that together creates environments where it's really hard to like relate across difference. And I think social media is one piece of that, but I think it's not the only piece. And then the last thing I'd say is like, I've gotten less focused in the last 10 years on if only people came into contact with the right content then everything would be good like if only if only i as a liberal saw a little more fake fox news then i would really understand what it was like to be a republican i think we empirically that's not true and in fact you know often the content creates a worse impression than actually a relationship with a real life person would would do and so my focus has shifted from like How do we get people in contact with better, with more diverse sets of content to like, how do you actually build the kinds of relationships that then build trust across these differences so that you actually know people? And to me, that's like a a really, that's a pretty different lens.
2: I definitely want to come back to how you do that. But I was going to ask Danielle for a report card as well. You know, it's getting towards 15 years on since you started writing about, you know, issues of invasions of sexual privacy on the internet, criminalizing revenge porn. And it's funny, you know, when I first started paying attention to this not too long ago, it was just sort of obvious to me, like, of course, revenge porn should be criminalized. I mean, what? <laughs> this is a discussion, um, but it, it was and it is. So I was wondering if you could give us a report card, both on the attitudes around um, your work uh, and also legally. You know, where are we law-wise with the development of the kind of reforms that you've been pushing for?
0: And just before you begin, we're actually covertly just trying to make each of you feel like older than you actually feel by <laughs> saving the <laughs> amount of time that you've been looking at these things.
1: Well, we've definitely come a long way in the since 2007 when I started thinking and writing about cyberstalking. I wrote a piece called Cyber Civil Rights in 2008. And at the time, I called for aid that we should understand cyberstalking as a crime, as a tort, and as a civil rights violation. And that we should change Section 230, right? And at the time, I had colleagues were like, you're going to absolutely break the internet. (laughs) You you are the enemy of the First Amendment. And they said it lovingly. Like, I know for sure these are my privacy and free speech colleagues. Um, And so the idea that we would criminalize ones and zeros or online content, um, which in some ways, this resonates a lot with what Eli was saying about the sort of pathologies that we see Throughout history, you know, humankind's pathologies are, they're exacerbated online, they're the same pathologies, right, and, and we see them, they're acute, you know, when we're face-to-face, right, as, as they're acute online, and it's like a whole society problem. Um, you know, that was, that was absolutely true, the way in which we dismiss gendered harms is a long story. Right. That is nothing new in many respects. And we've definitely come a long way, certainly as we thought about domestic violence and sexual harassment in the workplace. It was a triviality. It was no big deal. Right. It was a perk of the workplace, so to speak. And we, we <laughs> hate to say it, but that's what folks said about it in the late 60s and 70s. And, you know, we wrapped our minds around it. Law changed. We changed. It's still not perfect. It's a much better workplace right, than the one that I entered into in my 20s. It's a much better workplace than what my mom entered into, right? So, so we are making some progress, but what's interesting when I started writing about online abuse, which was very gendered and sexualized and often, you know, targeting women and sexual minorities and, and gender and race when combined was like combustive. It was like, get over yourself, Danielle. This is no big deal. It's boys will be boys. The internet's special, right? It's, it has its own rules. And I think I I plugged away enough, I was irritating enough (laughs) that, and it started happening to too many people, right? You Mm. couldn't just say, oh, Danielle, it's Kathy Sierras, be quiet. It was like so pervasive. And then we saw in 2016, it was journalists, you know, covering the election, you know, it became so pervasive. We just couldn't deny it anymore. And, you know, we had already made a whole bunch of progress. You know, 2014, Ariane Franks and I write this article called Criminalizing Revenge Porn. And, it was like shocking that we were proposing that we might criminalize invasions of sexual privacy and intimate privacy, though we've been doing that, right, um, in, in all sorts of ways, video voyeurism laws. It's not as if we haven't thought about this before. And we had two laws on the books in the, at the States in 2014 when we wrote that article. Now there are 48. But let's be clear, the laws aren't great. You know, like Mary and I have such heartache. They're, they're mostly fel- they're mostly not felonies. They're misdemeanors. They're woefully under they're not well designed. So prosecutors, even if it's the, the laws aren't written in the way that we counsel lawmakers always, there's a few states that have less sort of listened to our advice. So they just are woefully underenforced in that way. And, and law enforcement still the social attitudes that we experienced and have experienced for a long time, which is just turn your computer off, ignore it, it'll go away, which is not true, right? Of course, it's Google is your CV. Those still are pervasive. So, in I'm, my new book is about intimate privacy, why it matters, and and how we ought to protect it. And our social and cultural attitudes are still not where I wish they were. And the problem is global. So, like we think American exceptionalism, like the one thing that isn't exceptional about us is sexism, racism, gendered abuse. <laughs> like, like there is nothing special about us in that way. And it, so, it's a global problem. You know, we still have a long way to. Go in terms of social and cultural attitudes and laws got a long way to go because it's all globally interconnected. You know, where are the scoff laws in the United States? You know, these scoff law sites that are focused on hidden cams and revenge porn, where are they located? They're not located in Denmark. They're not located in, you know, in France. They're located and hosted in Las Vegas. So I'm like, the report card is doing better, taking this stuff seriously. I was once crazy. I'm no longer crazy. That's so fun. But, but, you know, we still have a ways to go. There aren't, it's not all of a bad story, right? And it's fun to talk to Eli who, you know, when the filter bubble came out, it was, I think a really important piece to have a, a general audience for, because it helped us see the way in which algorithm decision-making has so shaped our lives in ways that are just so bad for democracy, <laughs> right? And as Eli, you were saying, it's, it's not great for democracy, still, right? But at least we're we're working on on these problems together.
2: Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.
3: Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco.
0: And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics.
3: But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around
1: things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important... Your participation is. And I think it's the time for this
3: generation to put forward new voices.
0: More reporting with analysis.
3: It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well.
0: More politics with personality.
3: I've sweat election day my entire life.
0: Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that.
3: Political breakdown daily.
0: Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and
3: why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th.
0: Leaders in government and
2: tech want to rewrite a law that shapes the internet. It is clear that Section 230
3: in its current form is no longer working. This law needs to be updated so that it continues to work well. I think that Congress should update the law to make sure that it's working as intended.
2: Section 230
0: is a law that governs who's liable for what people post on social media. But some critics say it lets platforms censor users or spread harmful information and should be rewritten. To understand this debate, it will help to dissect the bill. Here's the first critical passage. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information Provided by another information content provider.
2: That was Representative Kevin McCarthy, Senator Brian Schatz, and Mark Zuckerberg in a Wall Street Journal video about Section 230.
0: For those who don't know, I mean, Section 230 is, is the part of, of law that creates uh, a shield for Facebook at all to make them non liable for content, essentially. I mean, that's the simplest way to talk about it for those who are you know, not familiar with the jargon part of it. And the pushback's always been look, uh, when most of our communication was by phone or through mail, right, you couldn't sue the post office or AT&T for obscene letters or harassing content there. So the pushback's been, you know, we 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 do want a world where information and ideas and, and communication flows relatively freely. So the challenge has always been, how do you address things that are essentially illegal separate from the platform, right? I mean, you can't harass people. There's a whole series of laws on the books. And I, I mean, I think both of you would agree that that's been a legitimate question, right? You don't necessarily, you don't want to go to the other side of the equation, right? Where everybody's listening <laughs> and filtering and censoring because then you're in the we don't we don't want to create in the name of good a, a pseudo sort of China surveillance state, right? So I mean, how does one do that? I mean, Eli, you're you you've thought also a lot about culture around this there's also the unfortunate aspect of no matter how well you regulate certain things, there's also just the cultural reality, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I do think, uh, and I'm sure Danielle has a bunch of brilliant thoughts about this. Um, But one of the challenges with this whole thing is like a notion about free speech that draws mainly on like the way speech works in person and print versus kind of thinking about amplification. And I feel like uh, there's just people can't help but turn a debate that's actually about amplification a lot of the time into a debate about should anyone get to say anything to anyone in any particular context. So it doesn't address the revenge porn stuff necessarily. In that, you know, I think probably Danielle would argue, like, even if I'm just sending it to one person, that's a problem. But it's definitely much more of a problem when. 100,000 a million 10 million people can see it or people can see it for 10 years or whatever and that's not a speech issue in the same way that's not like i i don't get to say it it's what are these companies that are in the middle that are amplifiers doing with it and it's funny because really when you think about it like nobody thinks you can walk into the town square set up an enormous uh you know speaker system and blast your point of view for 24 hours a day. And that's like, that's just free speech. What like, what's the problem? Like we we accept that there are limits on amplification that are necessary in order to have like a cogent public conversation. But when it comes to platforms, this all gets like really blurry. And obviously it's worth saying, I think we all know this, platforms aren't first amendment. Uh, like they're not, they're not first amendment spaces to begin with. They're not like, they're private entities. You can, they can take down whatever, but, the way that people imagine what their rights are in digital space, I think, is is kind of warped a bit. Both by the fact that we have to like do public discourse in what are actually private places—that's a challenge—and then also the fact that we mistake the right to, as Renee Deresta would say, like free speech does not equal free reach. And uh, you know, people keep making those those mistakes.
1: No, I I'm with you. I think the idea—it's a harm question. And network tools produce a whole lot of harm that that you're not going to produce um, if we're face to face with someone, and it's it's we're not going to produce it if we send it via snail mail or even publish it in a newspaper where memories fade. Now you know, circa I would say just assume it was I'm I'm saying that of 50 years ago, right? The paper I got in my mailbox. It's just the harm calculus is different, right? And so, the amplification, the pervasiveness, the um, persistence. It's just creates harm that is really different. And, and Eli's absolutely right. The, the, the First Amendment doesn't mean that every one and every zero is protected, right? There's even speech that we regulate that just, we don't even think it's in the boundaries of the First Amendment as my colleague Fred Schauer would say. And so, and there's lots of, we, there are 22 crimes that are made up of words. We can't act like speeches. We say that word, we're like, oh, wrap it up. We're good, <laughs> no law here it's, it's a harm question. And the 21st century harm is different.
0: How do we deal with the, um, the countervailing harms? Here's a good one, which I know both of you are really familiar with, but it bears repeating. Uh, there is probably, you know, barring an extremely lunatic fringe, not a lot of people who would defend the recording use and publication of child pornography just as a thing, right? That's, there's not a huge constituency in favor of this. Uh, but the laws that were designed at an earlier time legitimately to crack down on, on child pornography began as teenagers <laughs> started sharing nude pictures of each other, consensual nude pictures, not not revenge porn stuff. You know, there was a spate of prosecutions of teenagers for sharing private pictures with each other because it was either intercepted by the school or somebody saw it on a phone and did a screenshot. I think there's been some degree of, of adjustment to that in the sense of, okay, right, these laws were not actually designed to make my 15-year-old a sex offender for the rest of their life. Even though statutorily, that's an entirely legitimate interpretation of the statute. So like, what do you do about that? And and then kind of leaving it for like prosecutors to go, oh, right, yeah, we don't really want to go there, but we could go there.
1: That's like when law goes off the rails. That's, you know, we, we invest a lot of discretion in prosecutors. And you're right that prep child um, exploitation laws are strict liability. So we're not looking at your mental intent. So if you you have a nude, nude picture of a teen, as someone who's under 18, it's going to be considered child porn if you distribute it, you sell it, you possess it. And you're right. There have been absurd prosecutions in Virginia and North Carolina that were about seven years ago, um, and and we're seeing less of that now. And it's in large part because, like, you ask, what's the purpose of the law? <laughs> the purpose of the law is to prevent, prevent child predation and child rape. Uh, it's not to, you know, deal with the teenagers, right? And so those were so absurd and painful. And often who really was most hounded were women, girls. Um, and people of color, it was just, it was every bad thing about police discretion you can think of wrapped up into one. And so, you know, but we do that right in the law all the time. It's it because we invest prosecutors with a whole lot of power, right? And the police, uh, they can, dis- they disappoint us in like lots of different ways a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't know, Eli, if this interfaces with what you've been thinking about too, you know, the sort of child exploitation material sort of conversation.
3: Yeah. I mean, le- this is, I think, you know, part of your your experience and the trajectory of this whole topic area over time is like, who's designing these technologies in the first place, which, you know, I can just say like, I, I've been a relatively opinionated dude on Twitter with political opinions and all this stuff. I've never gotten like you know, slit your throat and die, bitch, or what like, whatever the most and that's like just table table stakes for all of my female friends who are saying anything at all, right? So it's easy, you know, if I was designing a product, yeah, I don't have that experience. And I might, you know, with all the good intentions, think like, ah, oh, this is just someone who's having this particular little, you know, it's a corner case. It's like a, a thing that's happening over here. You know, I just think it's a structural problem with how we're designing these technologies in these companies that you really don't have those people at the table who are going to be able to say like, no, everybody, every woman has this experience at some point, you know, if they have a public life online.
2: I was going to say it happens even if you barely have a public life online. So that's happened to me and I have 150 Twitter followers. So, you know, I take your, your point, you know, very, very seriously, Eli, but this ties in very nicely to the work you're doing, Eli, about how you do design a healthy space and how you do design a space with maybe other people in mind that weren't in mind uh, <laughs> when the current spaces we have were designed. And it was this sort of like basic, but really important point of it doesn't have to be like this, the spaces that we have and that we use, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we have to continue on using. So yeah, I wanted to ask you, okay, first of all, what would, what would a healthy online space look like? Uh, you know, we know that what it doesn't look like, but it's hard to imagine you know something that's not right in front of us
3: yeah well so so one um so i do think like the the bottom line is like there's been this mythology that you know the the internet is this um beneficent force of its own that is magically going to shore up democracy decentralize power make everyone rich like you know and, and and there was a there was a period i think where i personally like bought into some pieces of that in the sense that like uh, when i was running move on in the 2000s you know, i really felt like this is technology that is going to is going to make ordinary citizens more powerful you know i think as we fast forward through the last couple of decades it's become clearer to lots of us that th- that isn't an, an inherent trait of um, technology or the internet and it may not even be the main trait of the internet the way that it's structured but but i think the other piece is you know when you look through the history of communications technologies uh, you know, all the time, there have been these kind of resets where countries and regimes have decided to shape their communication uh, mediums to suit their national needs. And some of those ways have been problematic, but others have been, you know, the creation of public media or the decision to build out a journalistic sector that is is not the, just the yellow press. Or, you know, there's, there's all these moments in history where we can, where where there was an intention to kind of structure things in a certain way. I think right now the online spaces that we have fail to pass the laugh test in terms of what we would actually think we, you would would work as a, as a kind of global connective medium in two ways. like one is or maybe three like one is the idea that you can make an algorithm that works for three billion people in 190 countries. like why would we think that was even slightly possible? like that sounds implausible cuz it is implausible and what we know is that it doesn't it doesn't work that way and there are all sorts of countries especially if you're in the global south or you're you know that just like you have to deal with a version of facebook or a version of twitter that's like actively not working for the way that that society is structured you know we live in the united states in the best version of facebook like this is as good as it gets cuz cuz that's where all the engineers are and that's where a lot of the political capital is so Everywhere else is living in a less attended to, more Wild West, less moderated, less, you know, adjudicated version. So so one piece is just like scale. Like, I, I don't actually believe that you can do it at scale. Another piece is structure, which is a lot of our work in New Public is like trying to think through what can we learn from offline spaces that can inform better online spaces. And in terms of structure, like one of the things that you look at in an offline community is like, yeah, we have private businesses; they play an important role. But we also have all of these social institutions that do a lot of the really critical work of um, inviting people in, binding them together, helping make sure that everybody has their basic needs met. And we just don't have any kind of commensurate kind of social sector online. Like the, you know, they, we're trying to solve every problem through the lens of. A venture backed for profit company. And I think like there's a role for that, but it's not the only way to solve problems, nor does it scan that we'd want to solve a bunch of thorny public problems inside of that structure. It's just not the right structure. And then I think the third piece is about power and governance, which is like the other thing we know about what makes sort of functional societies and communities and democracies work is that you do have these kind of like federated layers where people actually are able to like have a say in who gets to say what and how things work. And that's a really critical part, not only of building spaces that work for people, but also building faith in the whole enterprise of public space. And, you know, we're living in kind of a very technocratic autocracy online. Like you cannot, as a user, say, I want Facebook to change the way it's doing X and have any, you know, say in it. So, governance is wrong, structure is wrong, scale is wrong, I I think. And I think the good news is we've talked about child porn, we've talked about harassment, we've talked about the whole structure of the internet being wrong. But here's the good news. The good news is there's a whole bunch of people who I think are are starting to pivot toward this sort of what folks are calling web 3.0 or decentralized web, but, but basically sort of like other other ways of thinking about how you could bring um, digital space to kind of human-scale, governable structures. And I think that's that's kind of where the pendulum is swinging. There are a lot of big questions about how you deal with things like uh, child porn or, or other sort of like things that you don't want in these structures. But I do think like that's where we're going to see the next wave of kind of innovation and better spaces because that's always what's worked in human society and community that Uh, you know, finding these, like, local situated solutions to these problems generally beats out the, like, one-size-fits-all top-down version.
2: History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the internet, have a look around.
0: Anything that brain of yours can think of can be found. We've got mountains of content, some better, some worse. If none of it's of interest to you,
3: you'd be the first. Welcome to the internet, come and take a seat. Would you like to see the news or any famous women's feet? There's no
2: need to... That was Welcome to the Internet by Bo Burnham from his 2021 comedy special, Inside.
0: I, I want to go back to one thing you said before and also ask Danielle about this because you know you said you, you used to believe at one point that these tools in a more utopian moment in your life cycle, right, when you're doing move on would empower the individual. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me in a lot of ways that they certainly continue to massively empower individuals. You know, 15-year-old has a million followers, whether that's often the negative, I'm gonna harass someone in a way that is amplified and multiplied. I mean, some of it maybe is confronting the fact that if every individual's voice is amplified, a lot of those voices are voices that, you know, other moments in society probably legitimately were interested in in not hearing. Um, I mean, that may be just a, somewhat of a confrontation of human nature. And I guess, Daniel, it kind of goes back to this question of, all right, take, take aside the things that are already illegal, that are amplified in a hugely destructive way, the whole realm of kind of Harassment, particularly sexual, particularly reputational. But what do you do about the political side of it, right? Because you know, pamphlets from time immemorial were libelous in ways that were not necessarily prosecutable. Um, you know, people have been saying vile, uh, rumor mongering things about political opponents and either to either gain advantage or gain followers, and we've kind of accepted some of that as as a messy, maybe unfortunate, but just a reality of human democracy if it ever exists. Um, but there's a huge call now to say you know, no, you can't do a picture of Nancy Pelosi looking like she's slurring um, because it it implies some sort of mental impairment, which implies dot, 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 dot. Um, again, like I, I'm eternally wondering like how those lines actually get drawn in a way that facilitates and also just allows for some of human ugliness, right? It, it, particularly in the political realm. I'm, I'm moving away from the, you know, realms that I think there should be no argument.
1: Right. So in the New York um, Supreme Court, in in a case, the New York Times versus Sullivan, you know, talked about how we need to have breathing space, especially when it comes to political speech. And there's even some suggestion that we should ratchet back New York Times versus Sullivan. Right. And I I think in many ways, the First Amendment isn't perfect, but it's got some great important lessons. Right. And one of them is when it comes to the political sphere, that where we should treat that as speech that gets the most. Protection, and that we ought to not bubble wrap it because we don't want to bubble wrap really anything. But if it's, there's bubble wrap, it's political speech, and you know the question of what is political speech, what's newsworthy, legitimately newsworthy, can be. There's some difficult questions, right? Of course, like we can come up with a, a whole bunch of scenarios where we would say, <laughs> "But hold on a minute, right? That that isn't terribly legitimately newsworthy." But for the most part, like we do have tools in the First Amendment that we can deploy. And I hope we don't change that in many ways. Like there's some ways in which we need to bring greater regulation into online life. And I think there are ways that we can, you know, uh, fix Section 230 without burning the house down at all, right, By like keeping it. But, um, you know, we we do, I think, so the suggestion, right, that, that the, na- the cheap fake of Nancy Pelosi slurring her words was uh, the kind of speech I think we're gonna protect right if we stick to the first amendment right do we understand that as actually maliciously defamatory probably not it's probably parody and it was harmful and i i wanted facebook to take it down i criticized them when they didn't right because they're a private actor right they make all sorts of choices you know like we're we're not we're users we're we are products right we are It's not as if they are creating spaces of public discourse. That's certainly not, at least in principle, for themselves and their bottom line, right, is they're making money off of our data. I think we do have some tools in the First Amendment toolbox. We can say that the First Amendment gives us that is the doctrine, right? And free speech values gives gives us play in the joints that we can have robust, obnoxious, offensive, unlovely speech that is about and by matters of public and in- legitimate public interest, that whether it's about politicians or political issues, that we can have a lot of breath, like we can have a wide breathing room. But I think where we hit the wall and should hit the wall is where we're seeing public health become endangered, right? So the dis- the COVID disinformation, I realize we can't really punish that. That's like the First Amendment is not going to probably allow us to prescribe that kind of speech. Like, we only punish lies when they're harmful in concrete ways that law would regulate. But don't we want that taken down? You know what I mean? Like, we ended up with people dying because of COVID disinformation, not wearing masks, becoming convinced that as a matter of ideology, they shouldn't get vaccinated, which is frankly absurd, right? So And there's a whole lot of death that follows. So in a way, you know, the First Amendment, so that's my negative side of the First Amendment, it would let that speech play online, and it's really disastrous. And so in some respects, I'm happy it's private companies that are making these choices about amplification. It's also true of the New York Times, like we're talking hard copy, that they make editorial choices all the time. And so there's some falsehoods that are political, I, You know, I'm saying this with air quotes, that are really destructive and dangerous, given scale, persistence, go back to Eli's original point, right, about amplification. And I sort of am grateful that we have gatekeepers, hopefully, that are being responsible. They're not often responsible. And I want to nudge them to be more responsible. And so we got to change law, I think, a little bit there. But so there's some lies that in the past maybe weren't so damaging, right, Zachary? Like the pamphlet, um, and we said scurrilous things. You know, Hamilton said scurrilous things about people. So did Madison. They all did. But with the reach, we can kill people with lies that had to do with public health. So- I think, again, like the harm shouldn't leave us as part of our conversation because it's not an ideal world. It's the world we live in, (laughs) right?
3: If I could just add one piece to that, like I also think we underestimate the like free speech consequences of having hostile spaces. Like we always talk about free speech in the context of um, why don't I just get to say whatever the hell I want? But we don't really think about how many people um, self-censor because they aren't sure if they're actually uh, going to be able to speak uh, safely or be heard uh, without, uh, you know, a, a huge bunch of um, you know negative uh, consequences. And there's some great research, you know, that's sort of counterintuitive on this point. That Nate Mathias, among other people, have have Nathan Matthias, at uh, Cornell, among other people, have have um, you know put together about. The way that having some rules and enforcement structures—and this isn't like government rules, but this is—this is just having some structure to a speech forum actually makes it more inclusive for everybody. Because when you walk in and you're someone who maybe has, it tends to be lower status or in a, in a typically you know less less powerful group, and there you don't know what the rules are, often you, you'll assume correctly that there's some kind of negotiated agreement about what's okay here that you don't totally understand and you silence yourself until you can figure that out and figure out what's okay. If you say like, here's what we do here, here's what's okay here, and here's what's not okay. The research shows like a lot more people and especially women and folks of color and other folks who would tend to self-censor in other environments are are game to participate. And so all of that's to say like, in practice, not as a matter of the Constitution, but just in practice, if what you're interested in is people getting to speak, then you have to care about everyone, what's stopping some people from speaking, as well as, you know, stepping on people who are inclined to speak a lot.
0: I do think this goes both ways, though, in that, all right, so I am, you know, like most people of of my class and place, you know, card carrying, uh, had to debate whether or not, uh, fudging my credentials to get a vaccine was the right thing to do as opposed to should I get a vaccine you know kids are getting a vaccine like uh and while I'm I'm not a big fan of the conspiracy theories that like a vaccinated person can somehow transmit negative DNA to a pregnant woman and create like osmotic birth defects I'm not making that one up by the way I mean that's actually out there as a there was a school in florida that that told vaccinated teachers not to show up for fear that it would have these negative effects that we would not quite be able to know and while you know the microchip theory that the vaccines are carrying little embedded pieces of information kind of like the tin foil with the ufos but i also i i'm not sure that i i, I want to be in a society where people can't say look I don't believe I should do this. It's untested. I'm 22. You know, what if it's going to create negative effects? I'm not saying that I think that should be a guiding principle, but it was a guiding principle about other vaccines at other times. Like again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm mindful of, of of not creating a space where we're where we're inadvertently, by virtue of moral principle, creating the very filter bubbles that you talked about that where negative impacts, negative you know arguments we don't want to hear that are somewhat good faith are, are literally filtered out?
3: Well, I think there's, I, I don't think we have to aspire, like those, are, those aren't the only choices, right? <laughs> is like, a- anyone can say any crazy thing and, um, you know, there's top down management of what is true and what is not true. Like another, another better way in between those things is to say, here are the qualities that a statement has to meet in order to be, Considered amplifiable right now. The way that this works online, those qualities are: it gets a lot of engagement. It makes people mad. It makes people happy. It makes people whatever. But it's getting a lot of engagement. That's the only criteria. Uh, and we all know, you know, the old gatekeepers had their set of criteria, and now they were problematic for a whole bunch of reasons as well. But I, I don't see why we should frame this as like it's either. Everyone gets a right to amplify whatever crazy thing or, you know, we're, we're going to like fact check every single you know tweet before it gets to be tweeted. Like there's a there's a middle ground, which is to say there's like a higher bar for stuff that gets seen by hundreds of thousands or millions of people. I think we can over imagine that like digital platforms are a even playing ground where every tw- citizen gets to be heard. And in fact, like most people super don't, and it's still very heavily tilted in favor of people with enormous followings and the people that they rebroadcast. So if you look at what tweets most people see, most people see tweets from people who are celebrities, essentially. And there are some viral kind of side moving tweets. But like the structure of that medium is still very pretty, pretty strongly like more broadcast like than like truly social in the way that we imagine so the second piece is like i think it would be reasonable to say you have some additional responsibilities if you're going to be seen by millions of people we've said that in a bunch of different places again not necessarily as a law but as a part of the contract of being part of these platforms is like you have you're talking to a million people maybe you need to show your work when it comes to sharing something that is important medical information. Or maybe you need to be able to defend your work if someone challenges it. There's all these interesting ideas about sort of like, you know, coming out of the blockchain world about like courts where you can stake a claim against uh, adjudicate, like I think you said something false, prove that you didn't. So there's a bunch of different ways that you could imagine this working if you don't, if if you accept that there's some amount of responsibility that comes with amplification.
2: I'm imagining the high court of internet truthiness as the, uh, you know.
3: <laughs> no, but actually, I mean, what, one of the things that, you know, interesting question is how do you bring it down to down to the ground? You know, how do you bring it down to everyone has some experience being part of making decisions about what can be said um, or that a lot of people do? Like what what would digital speech jury duty be like that would sort of ingrain this idea that like everyone's got to sit on both sides of this table and figure out like, what do we, what do we want to, um, what do we want to think is okay here? That would be, I think there's multiple reasons to do that.
1: And there's some models for that, right? Uh, You know, world of Warcraft, you know, ways in which we have like jury systems for content moderation though, of course you would need to know what the values are. We're going to be adjudicating, right. And what would, right? What would work? And maybe we need like a small claims court too, you know, forget the high court, right? <laughs> uh, I like the jury duty, though, metaphor too.
0: You know what gets left out of this? I'm sure it hasn't been left out of it by either of you, but I feel like it is left out of some of the discussions, how Wikipedia has created its its sort of moderated world very quietly. Um, I mean, I think about this a because I have two teens and Wikipedia, you know, really is like the Encyclopedia Britannica on steroids, but it is something that I mean we all use. Right, first of all, it shows up very highly in most searches. So, the temptation I I certainly am guilty as charged, right? If 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 I'm just looking for something quick and dirty and informational, I will often just click on the Wikipedia link because it's it's present and it's there and it's concise. Um, but if you think about something that would be ripe for manipulation of information and they were aware of this very early on right
1: it's lawlike though that's the thing about Wikipedia is it is like a it's got a court system it is really rigid so there's been some you know Joe Regal and Dave Hoffman Salil herera have written there's a lot written about Wikipedia and it's incredibly lawlike so it's intensive it's all, Volunteer, but it's intensive. When you talk to the folks who serve as arbitrators, I've given talks at the Wikimedia Foundation. They are like as geeky and as excited to talk to me as a law professor because they're acting as arbitrators.
0: Do you think that's why do you think it's been so limited to that one? I don't know what you call it vertical world reality.
1: Right. It's like incentives, I suppose. You know, like you know, our our Facebook users there, you know, um, are they going to figure out and learn the rules of the role? Does anyone really read the, you know, the terms of service agreements? We should, all of us should, we should learn about them. We should be taught about them and why, and Facebook should teach us why it bans hate speech and how it defines it. Right. But they're not doing that. And even if they tried, like, would we each and every one of us, I hope we would, but that's an incentive problem, right? Like we just, right? I think the folks at Wikipedia Media Foundation and the folks who are engaged as arbitrators, they're like really into it. You, I mean, it's not a small number of people. You know, they have these meetings that it's like 400 people. I spoke to a room of 450 people and they were like hardcore, all the editors and arbitrators. So I think it's just their, it's not, it's not bad, Zachary, that you go to Wikipedia because you know what, as it turns out, you know, they catch problems pretty quickly because of... that's why I'm using it is
0: like it's 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 intriguing to me that here's a really good positive model, right? Not a lot of people are claiming they've been censored on Wikipedia. It is a it is a vast and ever-increasing trove of information that links through its footnotes to vast and ever-increasing troves of information. You, you'd think that that is a self-governing, unbelievably potent global model of information conduit. That is that is guarded, right? Who's whose parameters of like something in the realm of reality is guarded? You would think that that would be like ah, here's a model we could actually build on.
3: Yeah, you know, I think there's there's two things. One is like we have a whole venture capital industry that produces Facebooks, and we just don't have the analogous thing that produces Wikipedia's. So it, it's a model that works because it is a values driven enterprise. If it was a company. Um, I think people might feel very differently about spending you know, 2,000 hours a year contributing to it for free. <laughs> and I, I do think that gets back to this point of like, this is a way that we organize a bunch of functions in society all over the place. There are community centers and high schools that where people contribute their labor because it's serving some public purpose and also because it's satisfying on an individual level. I think we need more institutions like that digitally, but I don't think that if Facebook was just like, hey, who wants to volunteer to spend thousands of hours doing our job? People would have the same kind of feeling about it. So I think that's one one piece of it. Second, like I, I don't I want to be careful not to over glamorize Wikipedia because I think famous, famously, for example, you know, the gender split on Wikipedia articles has been pretty problematic and that. Um, you know, Catherine Marr, who, who ran it most recently, has done a lot of work to, like, fix that. But it turns out that the kinds of people who want to argue about the details of a, a fact online for free, you know, there's some, there's some, both a gender skew to maybe who's naturally more interested in that but then also like a lot of barriers to entry for women who want to get involved in that uh community.
1: And harassment unfortunately. Yeah, for arbitrators. Yes.
3: So so and what that's led to is that actually Wikipedia's, you know, write-ups on sort of women in history with more female leaning topics tend to be like way less well developed than every character on you know, a a big video game having its own, like, uh, 60-page write-up. Have you been getting more annoying emails than usual lately? Mainly asking you if you want to stay on a mailing list you don't even remember joining. Yeah? Sound familiar? Say hello to GDPR. It's being described as the biggest shake-up of data protection laws in a generation giving ordinary people unprecedented control over the information companies hold on us.
2: That was a segment from So What from Channel 4 News about the General Data Protection Regulation, known as GDPR, whose aim is to reform data protection in the UK and the EU, and therefore throughout the whole world. And right, so this is making me wonder, and it's something that Danielle said too about not reading you know, agreements online. I live in Europe. I know that GDPR is supposed to be good for me as a citizen, it's the bane of my existence. Cause I, I never, it's always just accept, or do you want to look at, you know, your cookie settings? I never want to look at the settings. I never have time to go through and read like what I'm actually agreeing to. So like, it just seems completely useless. Cause I'm just accepting, accepting, accepting. So I want to go onto the site. So I've been wondering, you know, Eli mentioned this internet 3.0 that's coming and I'm wondering if people listening feel like that's like waiting for Godot, right? Like what, what's, what's required of us in the meantime, or like, how can we like usher in this, this internet 3.0? Is it, I don't know, just being on Instagram less. So it's eating our brain less, or is it, you know, are we waiting for the internet overload to throw us a bone or what should we be doing?
3: Well, I would say like, there's a bunch of uh experiments that are happening at all sorts of different scales. And I think a lot of the most no setting work is happening at these really little scales where people are just playing with different ways of being together you know we we accept um a little too much that like um you know a news feed at the center is a good way for a group of people to like communicate with each other and it turns out like oh yeah there's a whole bunch of other we could we could have look at the look at the explosion and just audio as an example of there's this whole other mode that's available to us that creates really different dynamics in, in many cases for you know how people are, are relating. So I think w- one piece is sort of just being part of that, uh, being part of those experiments. It, it's going to be a combination of community structures and kind of like human social intelligence and technical intelligence that I think is going to usher in better digital communities. It's not like someone's going to figure out a protocol and then it's all going to be I think it's really going to take a bunch of non-technologists saying like, this is what works in terms of how to get people together. We kind of know this and how do we make that happen in a digital space? So I think there's a lot of opportunity for everyone to participate in that, I guess, is part of what I'm what I'm saying. And then I also think, in my opinion, we need to create the space for those things to emerge. And that probably means reining in some of the most anti-competitive practices of the existing platforms. So for me, you know, the idea that data isn't very portable, that I can't move around uh, or get access from a new social network to what's happening in Facebook is a big impediment to even starting to really do those experiments at scale. And so I would I would look at some of that work as well. And then I think, you know, longer term, there are some really exciting ideas coming up around to your consent point about terms of service, things like data trust. So data trust would be, I'm gonna trust a, a third party fiduciary to negotiate with platforms on behalf of me and my data. And um, I'm going to pool that with other people so that we've got some ability to kind of to have more power together. There's some regulatory things that would need to be in place for that. But I think it's like that might be a much better regime than trying to imagine that each of us are going to like make these really difficult calculations after reading through 50 pages of legalese.
0: And Danielle, as we wrap up, what are your what are your thoughts about this brave new world?
1: So I think that we have long, and this is gonna bounce a bit off of Eli's insights, that is, you gave us a lot of examples, Eli, of ways in which we can make individual choices perhaps perhaps better. And I think in some respects, um, the sort of conception of liberalism and the choosing self is just like not gonna solve the problems, that it's much more structural, right? And I don't mean to describe what you were saying, just some of them were very individualized, like how do we enhance individual choice? Where is choice is just not the right question that we need much more sort of structural rules around for me data collection like we need to cut off data collection right we there just we need better rules that are structural that get at structural problems of inequities um that we are much more deliberate about those choices in in online you know in in a world in which our data is being constantly collected, used mine shared and um, sold
0: I do want to thank you both for the work you're doing and for the ideas and the intensity and the passion to which you apply yourself to some of the most crucial issues that are going to be facing us for a long time to come. And there are all the things we didn't talk about in terms of states that are more controlled and what do you do about that. But I guess we will leave that for another conversation. Maybe we'll reconvene a little bit down the line and continue to yap as we should and as we will. So thanks, both of you.
1: Thank you.
2: like you said, Zachary, about this brave new world being ushered in, is whether we're in the low part of the V, right? So, like you said in the intro, we started out with such high hopes about the internet, we thought it was just gonna be the coolest thing since sliced bread. We were all playing Neopets and, I don't know, thinking that we were all going to be equally as powerful as the other. Now we're in the bottom of the V, maybe, and we'll be, you know, climbing our way back out of it. Do you think that's right? Does that seem correct to you?
0: Look, I think generically that tends to be the case. I do think attitudes towards the the shiny new object uh, inevitably get more critical over time as we become more familiar with it and as we examine it a little more and recognize, huh, you know, maybe this is a little more flawed or problematic. And look, for something that was supposed to amplify Millions, if not billions, of human voices. Um, the idea that there wouldn't be a downside to that, given <laughs> just human nature, was probably naive to begin with. Um, but I do feel, and I and I felt a little bit with the conversation, um, and I mean this constructively, that we are, we are in a moment of focusing on what this has all wrought in a particularly negative way, uh, and I think that's a necessary moment to think about as Eli talked about, what's our web 3.0 or our internet 3.0 or whatever this is called, our social media 3.0, because we are recognizing that what we have unleashed was an immense amount of, of genuine positive connectivity, but we also unleashed a lot of the dark id of human nature that we had kept either tamped down or hidden in the basement or locked away in the attic in a way that you know, might have been repressive in earlier times, but also had some social utility. And we're, I, we're trying to grapple with what do you do when you've, I'm gonna use another cliche, let the genie out of the bottle and there's no going back. But I think it's really important that people are looking at these. And, and, and someone like Danielle, who's been so focused on these egregious uses of these tools to do really ugly, awful things, but even she will defend to the death the right of people to speak the counter reaction is not shut it all down Uh, and i think that's quite positive
2: definitely you know you said putting the genie back in the bottle which you can't do i was thinking we need to shepherd the trolls back under the bridge you know maybe (laughs) that's the metaphor that suits us here rather than them lurking in your mentions and running amok we just need to get them back under the bridge where they belong and they can ask us for tolls every once in a while rather than terrorizing us on a daily basis
0: Oh, I love that. We're using Scando cliches instead of uh, other ones, but that's a really good one. Shepherding the trolls back into the bridge. I think that's a good one. This is clearly a conversation we all need to be having. We need to be having it with each other. We need to be having it politically. Uh, and I think one thing we didn't talk about, but is uh, I'll, I'll leave us with, is the people who have designed this ecosystem and the tech elites who have profited so mightily from it, I think are distressingly not engaged with the difficulty of these conversations and the difficulty of these decisions. And they are when they're, like, called in front of Congress and have to be. But they are not in an ongoing way involved in these discussions in a way that they should. And sure, maybe they're being told by lawyers, don't say anything, because if you do, someone will use it against you. And I, I mean, I get that that may be the case, but I don't think that, that may be partly an excuse, but I don't think it's a sufficient excuse. We all need to be engaged in these questions. And the people who are kind of at the epicenter of it, I, I wish we're more engaged in them.
2: No, that's a really good point. And I think that it's, uh, it, it's exactly the reason why they've drawn so much public ire, right? It's like, it's just dropped this thing on us and then walked away and, you know, wakeboarded with the American flag for talking about Mark Zuckerberg in particular. I don't know if everyone saw that. I'm sure you did because it went viral, but I don't feel very optimistic that they're going to like suddenly be part of the public conversation without, you know, more of the stick part of the carrot and the stick, but who knows?
0: And regardless, it's a conversation that that we're going to have and to some degree that they are going to be required to have by nature of all this. So we will keep having them. Thank you all for listening.
2: Thanks, everybody. To find out more information about The Progress Network and What Could Go Right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with The Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Barbalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator. Executive produced by Jeff Umbreau and The Poglomerate.